Today, I'm inviting you to step into the shoes of a parent navigating a daunting journey. It's one that revolves around a loved one suffering from a rare condition, and it's a journey that's shared by more than 3 million Canadians. It's true that Canadians are proud of our nation's free access to healthcare, but how many know about a big, missing piece of the puzzle? Canada stands alone among developed nations in lacking a comprehensive strategy to support those with rare diseases and their families. Imagine being one in 12 Canadians who face a diagnosis of a rare disease. Two-thirds of them are children. You're left with questions, fears, and a maze of uncertainties, all while grappling with the overwhelming responsibility of caregiving. Today, we meet Sandra Marcus, who has met all these challenges as she has raised her son, Zach. And now that he's an adult, she faces even more uncertainty in getting the care and support that Zach needs. Hello and welcome to I Care for Rare, a podcast for families of people living with rare diseases in Ontario. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey. I Care for Rare is a social advocacy campaign designed to give individuals, families, and caregivers living with rare diseases a collective voice for system, healthcare, and community support reform. And it is the brainchild of Sandra Marcus. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you, Sherry Lynn. I'm pleased to be here. Why are you launching I Care for Rare? I have a son who's 23 years old. He was he was born in 2000 and, di- and diagnosed at age 18. He's had a diagnosis for five years of a rare condition, but during his first 18 years, we were undiagnosed with a rare neurological disorder that had, we just knew he had seizures, really. And he's been diagnosed with, he was number 32 in the world at the time of diagnosis at 18. It's a neurodevelopment seizure disorder. It comes along with intellectual delay, autism, ADHD. And as we move through our daily lives, there's some internal challenges that he faces, some some health, some real health challenges for his future. But why did it take 18 years to get a diagnosis? I think, first of all, I think a lot of these new diagnoses are new diseases. Technology has changed and and we're now starting to have labels on or diagnosis against things that we never knew existed before. And so while he's one in, he was one in 32 at 18, he's now 200 in the world. And the oldest person that's been diagnosed with CHD2 is 40. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that person She's, in Canada? She is in Canada. It's very rare. There, I know of uh, four cases in Canada. I just think that there's a lot of individuals out there living with disease, diseases or disorders that, we, that have not been identified. So that's why I care for rare. Tell me about your name. Well, I care for rare. We've been living for 23 years with CHD2, five of those years knowing what it is. And within those five years, we've transferred to the adult system. And I have to say, it's been devastating for our family, for Zach in particular. Um, The challenge right now for us is a rare disease doesn't go away. He's going to live with this his whole life. And yet, We've had to change our complete medical support 
from a pediatrician who knew him and knew the system to general practitioner who we might be her only rare disease case, doesn't know the system, not familiar with the complexity of rare diseases. It's just not fair to the GP. I feel sorry for them having to take on these cases and the rest of the population because we're all so desperate for, for, for care and we have to go through our GP for that. Is that what the campaign's all about? In December of this past year, Zach has uh, a skin disorder, psoriasis. He has an, a new form of psoriasis called internal psoriasis, and it results in boils uh, internally. It's very painful, arthritis, a whole bit. As a dermatologist was deciding that the initial drug that he was on wasn't working as well as they had anticipated, and transitioning to a new drug went off-label to a, a biosimilar drug, I believe that's the term. And that drug changed my son, shut down brain receptors. He couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he couldn't function. And for a parent to watch that happen in a matter of 24 hours, it was quite devastating for all of us. We got to talk to the hand through that whole situation, not even, I grieved Zach. I, he's a different, he communicates differently now. He realizes he has new symptoms that he's not overly comfortable with. We have had no uh, grief or bereavement support. I literally grieved my son standing in front of me for four months, watching him deteriorate. And when we got the psychologist's report that this is a known reaction. Yeah, I, I decided I had to I had to do something. I had to say something in all of this. I had to stand up and say, wait, this is not right in Canada. <laughs> just my pride factor and my trust in the whole system just went out the door because I've been living with this for 23 years. This isn't the first crisis. This is one of many, and this was the last one. So what do you hope to achieve with the campaign? So there's CORD, the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders in Canada, has been doing a ton of research, has written draft strategies, has presented them to the federal and Ontario provincial legislature with a private member's bill that was read in June of this past year. I understand the complexity, but I'm tired of our lives as caregivers having to leave the workforce, having to take on a second full-time job of caring for my son, and, and nobody, nobody accountable or nobody taking control of a really serious issue that is being blatantly, I, I would say, blatantly ignored. The work that's been done, this strategy was done in 2017. It is sitting on federal ministers' desks. It is sitting on the premier's desk. Healthcare is delivered by the province. Yes. It is the on-the-ground access to services and proper health care for people suffering with undiagnosed or diagnosed rare diseases 
it's their responsibility. They are accountable. But until rare disease gets passed in, in the legislature as a thing, no healthcare system is ever going to address the, the people facing rare diseases. I'm looking at stories. CBC covered a story in 2016, a patient, a young patient of rare disease, a rare disease patient pleading with the government for better care. 2016. <laughs> it's 2023, folks, going into 2024, and our families are exhausted and we're tired of carrying the weight of a system flaw <laughs> at the end of the day. And Canadians are aware that there are families who can't access the health care that they so desperately need in this prosperous nation of ours? Yeah, absolutely not. We're doing tactics until we're doing things. We're doing, we're pushing stuff out just to, to say we're answering the need. We're given money. We're given this. We're given that. It's not going to work. It needs a complete system rehaul. And that complete system rehaul for people suffering with rare diseases isn't that challenging. The plan is there. It's been there since 2017. The work has been done by previous governments. It just needs to be passed. Your goal with the campaign is to make sure that Canadians are aware of these issues? The goal of the campaign is A, recognize that rare disease is a thing and that rare disease is not autism. Mm. We seem to have somehow, with living with a global delay and it's a neurogenetic, neurological disease, we've been bucketed into autism. <laughs> However, we don't get any autism supports like cognitive behavioral therapy and all of those things that the young children get, those weren't even available when Zach was young. But now that he's an adult, there are, there's no, there's nothing available for him. Where does the podcast fit into this campaign? The podcast is really a way of getting deeper into family story and the traumas, basically, that we experience at the hands of the system. The system does not recognize rare disease. We're lumped in with everybody else and our care starts and stops and starts and stops. And then we transition and we have a whole new set of healthcare providers. Teams don't talk to each other. GPs don't know what to do. I really want the podcast to share those personal traumas, to have the, the government stand up and, and say, yeah, this is not right. What's happening on the ground is not what we're seeing up high or, or is what we're seeing up high. And look, we really need to fix this because these families are suffering. And as a result, the children are suffering. And as a result, the economy is suffering. We'll hear more from Sandra in a minute. But first, here's some important information about rare disorder advocacy in Canada. CORD is Canada's national network for organizations representing all those with rare disorders. Their mission is to provide a strong voice and to advocate for health policy 
and a healthcare system that works for those with rare disorders. CORD has been advocating with federal and provincial governments for years. CORD Canada's Rare Disease Strategy lays out a five-point action plan. It starts with improving early detection and prevention. It goes to getting the right care to patients as early as possible. Then, enhance community support. Provide sustainable access to promising therapies. And finally, promote innovative research. Community support is a major part of this issue. A recent Ipsos report identified that caregivers are overwhelmed. Almost two-thirds of them say that they don't have access to a care coordinator, and more say that they didn't get much-needed counselling. More carers feel that they don't have enough information, and they don't know how to get it. And almost 90% agree that educational, disability, and employment services are not aware or informed about rare diseases. The research identified a real need for specialized centers with local healthcare professionals to reach all patients wherever they live in Canada. I Care for Rare is asking both federal and Ontario governments to amend the Health Protection and Promotion Act and immediately adopt the recommendation set out in CORD's Rare Disease Strategy as presented originally in 2017. Welcome back to the show. Okay, Sandra, let's talk a little bit about your son, Zach. Tell us about how your journey began when you found out that you were expecting your first child. Sherry Lynn, that's an interesting question because anybody with who has a child without a diagnosis or maybe even with a diagnosis will enjoy this comment because they've said it a thousand times. <laughs> with every new interaction, with every new healthcare provider, they've said, they've said this. Okay. So normal pregnancy. Yes. We planned normal pregnancy. I think I was sick once during that pregnancy. I called the doctor. I had a flu-like sy- symptoms, and I was worried about dehydration. But other than that, there was no sign of anything. We have no family history so we, we were enjoying pregnancy. When Zach was born, there were some physical features that alerted the pediatrician who was on call for the delivery that there was something amiss and that we would need to look into it further. So that was the news I got after they take the baby away and come back <laughs> with the baby and hand you the baby. Something's amiss and call me at my office. So that's where our, our devastating. devastating. Yeah. But when I when I think back right now, it's it's really a blur. I don't even know if it sunk in at the time. So then, missing milestones happened. A month or two off on milestones, and then a meeting with pediatrician general checkup. They said, "Has anybody ever talked to you about microcephaly, which is small head size?" I said, "No. <laughs> What's microcephaly?" So we started doing tests. We were we saw the genetics at CHEO. We were tested for Williams syndrome, one of the known diseases. Yeah, so we just went, that was our life. <laughs> we just global delay, first day of kindergarten for seizure. Oh. I remember, yeah. So well, he might have had seizures when we were young. I always used to say he used to crawl up one side of me and down the other. I, I believe that might have been infantile seizures, but I'm not sure. 
But yeah, so our life went on and we were bounced around. We did attend the CHEO school. It was called McHugh at the time. We, we, we were well taken care of, let's say, for the first several years of trying to find. And then life just goes on. We enter the school system, right? Your child has seizures. That's all we know. Right. But there's intellectual delay happening there and progressive intellectual delay. You know, he will, one day he'll know his alphabet, the next day he won't. That type of, of work. But there's also behaviors as they're trying to cope with their bodies and deal with their bodies and trying to communicate and not being able to find words. So there, there's all of the behaviors that we were dealing with and the school systems are not set up. I, I, have an, I have a letter from a psychiatrist at CHEO demanding that Zachary stay in place for the next school year because it was traumatizing to his mental health to move. Oh. They ignored that letter and they moved him downtown. And then they moved him again. <laughs> so why all these moves? Because the program that he was supposedly in was at capacity or was an opening spot in one school and not the other school. And so he was, he's way over in the East End, he's in the West End, he's in the big high schools, he's in the small, like he's all over the place. So now, uh, and us re-educating everybody every single time. So again, how did it start? Oh, normal pregnancy. Yeah. <laughs> so I go back to that comment because those who who have been asked these questions, that's how it all. <laughs> we got a call out of the blue at age 18. Dr. Matthew Lines from CHEO had taken an interest in Zach, knew he had some dysmorphic fe- features that were telltale signs of something. And he asked us if we would but be just willing. Listen, sorry to interrupt, Sandra, but... For our listeners, can you explain what dysmorphic means? Not normal features. <laughs> you mean facial features? <laughs> yeah, Zach has small ears. He has small hands. There's just physical features okay. that that show that something's amiss. Okay. And so he picked up the file and was curious about it, and we're very thankful. It did which are thinking because we were all like, okay, well, his seizures have been controlled after having paramedics in your bedroom in the middle of the night for years, trying to get him out of cluster seizures. His seizures are finally controlled. Uh, So now we can go to school and have somewhat of a normal school life. Well, that just wasn't the case. The teachers are overwhelmed, they're under-resourced, they don't know what they're dealing with in terms of the healthcare side of things, in terms of the behavioral side of things and how these people fit into the school community and should fit into the school community. So but I just want, I want people to know that the delivery of all of those therapies happens in an education system. Yes. It doesn't necessarily happen all the time in the hospital system. So these partnerships are creating uh, a bit of a challenge for the school system because they don't know how to deal with it, right? And then we have unqualified drivers taking these kids to school and it just goes on and on and on. Yes. So I know because I have a daughter who's a teacher that, that she gets support in the classroom 
for some of her children that have mm-hmm. different needs? Every year we would have to apply for, for support to get him the one-on-one that he needed. Um, he is not a one-on-three. He has no short-term memory. He'll get lost going to the bathroom. Yes. So he really is uh, a one-on-one and we could, because he was neuro development, he was physically relatively functional. So it was very difficult for us to get him one-on-one. In those instances where we did, he won school awards. In those instances where we didn't, we had tough years. Tell us a little bit about your family life then, because I know that you have another child and you you and your husband have careers and jobs and mortgages and all the things that make up part of family life in Canada. Isolating. It's the only word that I find coming to mind. Isolating, debilitating. Yeah. When you can't go to the bathroom <laughs> because somebody's in need of something, when you are a caregiver 24-7 for 23 years, you know, when you're when when you are nurse, educator, employment finder, social convener, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, speech language pathologist, administrator and manager of the caregiving system. So we manage all of the bill payments and the funding and all of that stuff. It's a full-time job. How has this impacted your other son? There's positive. There's definitely positive impacts in terms of empathy and and consideration for others, which I know that has benefited Noah. But there are challenges. Yeah, and it's how, it's how devastating. Do you, how do you see Zach's future? I don't. I don't see Zach's future. <laughs> I don't. Which is the biggest problem? Where he's with us until we go, and then what? <laughs> and I'll tell you, that's the biggest fear of any parent with a child with a, an illness, facing a life-threatening illness, is you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. There is risk that he could pass away in an evening with seizure. Every night, there's a risk. But in the future, what I'd really love to see is Zachary in a home that's a home, contributing to daily life, uh, holding down a small-time job. His social uh, person, he likes to be out and about in the community. He likes engaging people in the community. There's there's things that he can do that we can't see him ever getting there because we don't have the support to help. He could He could have a part-time job, but we just don't have that support right now to help. First of all, there are, there are no workers. Second, it's not about the workers because we have money in the bank. We can't spend it. <laughs> right. you know? So it's not about throwing more money at the system. So it's what is about it about redeploying? Them? It's about redeploying services specifically for rare disease patients who are the most vulnerable patients right now. If they had a trajectory of death that it was labeled that they won't live past X, well, these days you can actually outlive your diagnosis. Uh, so there's many children in palliative care that are moving into an adult system of palliative care uh, and are in with seniors. 
It's not right. It's not right. There are, I found out last night that there are lots of young individuals living with seniors across the province right now. I would like him to live in a small home with other other friends that that he relates to and and can contribute to their collective life. But right now that's that's not possible. That ends up down at the municipality level and in these community living low income housing units noting that some of them are for special assistance. And that's not happening. Sandra, could you describe any gaps or areas for improvement within the healthcare system that you believe would significantly benefit families like yours? Yeah, I I can I can name a few. First, first of all, the gap in the system is there's no single ownership of of this. We cross too many ministries to have a single ownership. So therefore there is no government accountability. And until a rare disease is recognized by the government through legislation that then becomes policy, we just continue to throw money at the same same system and the same ineffectiveness and waste as far as I'm concerned. Uh, no one knows what to call call it. We get lumped into autism, we get lumped into intellectual delay, we get lumped into disability. All of this time I've been saying, my son has a rare neurological disorder. He's never going to be neurotypical. (laughs) We really need to figure out how non-neurotypical individuals can live life within our communities. Because these are new diseases. CHD2, 1 in 32, now 200, only because of testing. These are newly recognized diseases, and the populations are increasing who have these. So it's not going to get any better. So the gap is that the governments are looking for tactics, patchwork, as opposed to developing a strategy. But the strategy was already developed in 2017, and nobody is, is paying any attention. And as we know, talk to the hand doesn't get us anywhere from a communications perspective. So there needs to be a lot more communication from the governments on what they're doing on this file. Outward, intentional communication to families suffering in the province and in the country. For starters, I think individuals with rare diseases should be given a a complex care coordinator. I think they, and not people who send you lists of information that parents need to follow up on. We need services that adapt to this type of life and and not lists of services that won't take Mm -hmm. this one because all we face is rejection. Mm -hmm. And all that the children, well, my child faced was rejection. No, you can't come in here. No, you can't be part of this group. No, we only have a one in three policy. No, you can't socialize here. It's 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 inhumane, quite frankly. We seriously need to look at those discriminatory services because they are discriminatory. Community day programs, etc., that are on the ground that won't take these children. The education sector 
need specialized training. Municipalities need to wake up in terms of the housing crisis and how this affects our populations that straddle healthcare and community care. Mm -hmm. There needs to be properly structured respite for these families 24 7, 23 years. Mm. Yeah, it, it is over the top for these families. And most important, I think, is grief and bereavement supports at the time of diagnosis. Yes. And grief and bereavement supports for the patients. Mm-hmm. So those who are facing a terminal illness do sometimes receive that as they go into palliative care. Those who hear that your child is ill, in my case, right at birth, and not knowing what that meant or the outcome, not fitting in anywhere for 18 years because of there's something amiss, we really need to provide these patients with the capability to cope. Yes. There are the number of mental health patients. This was a staggering. So rare disease is one of Canada's biggest public health challenges, as we all know. And we're the only country industrialization. What more do we have to say that we don't have a rare disease strategy and we're the only industrialized nation that don't, doesn't? We're like, it's almost embarrassing from the Ipsos research uh, study. uh, 74% of families impacted by rare disease uh, did not receive any emotional or psychological support. Living, employment, education, and healthcare. What can I say? Uh, they all they all intertwine in our life, and I'm tired of standing on the rooftops having to yell and scream to make our case. It's time. It really is. With all the research that's been done by CORD and all the planning and strategies that have been done and are sitting on desks since 2017, it's really time Canada and Ontario do better. So, Sandra, given everything that you've shared with us today, tell us what is your ask. What are you asking for with I Care for Rare? My ask is for system level reform for both health care and community support care, which is so critical to everyday life, be reformed to include those suffering from rare diseases. Thank you for joining us on this inaugural episode of I Care for Rare. We've delved into the often hidden world of rare diseases and the challenges faced by Canadian families because a comprehensive strategy is missing from the healthcare landscape. Sandra Marcus, a passionate advocate and parent, has generously shared her personal journey raising a son with a rare disease, shedding light on the complexities, uncertainties, and the profound responsibilities that come with caregiving. Through I Care for Rare, Sandra aims to unite individuals, families, and caregivers, amplifying their collective voice for healthcare and community support reform. As we move forward with this podcast series, we will continue to bring you stories, insights, and conversations that highlight the urgent need for change 
in how we support those living with rare diseases. We'll explore the experiences, the triumphs and tribulations of remarkable individuals and families who navigate this challenging journey every day. If you have a story to share or a perspective to add, or if you're seeking support, please reach out. Together, we can drive awareness, advocate for change, and create a world where rare is recognized, understood, and supported. Please see the show notes for links to our website and other resources mentioned on today's show. Thank you for listening to I Care for Rare. Stay tuned for more inspiring episodes as we embark on this important mission for a more inclusive and compassionate healthcare system.